Ecclesiastes, church. Ecclesiastes, that's in the Old Testament. If you find, if you kind of just go to the middle of your Bible and find the book of Psalms, and then you'll come to the book of Proverbs after that. And the next book after Proverbs is Ecclesiastes. That's where we want to land this morning. If you need a Bible, we can provide you with one and just raise your hand. And there's a little note page in your bulletin. If you'd grab that, I think that will be of some help to you along the way. And for any of you who might be joining with us for the first time today, or maybe the first time in a while, uh, we're on a verse-by-verse journey through one of the really amazing but also most perplexing books of the Bible. We're midway through chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, and we're zeroing in today on verses 12 through 26, which will close out this chapter and set us up for chapter 3 next time. As we rejoin Ecclesiastes, remember that we're actually reading someone's diary. It's the diary of a man who, at the time, held the highest highest possible office in a very powerful nation, the nation of Israel. The man's name is Solomon, and he's the king of Israel. He's one of the richest people in the world, maybe the richest person in the world of his time. His nation is at peace, having lived through 40 years of war under his father, King David, and and so it really feels good to be at peace. This allows Solomon to think about other things besides defending his borders and how do I make war. So Solomon is a man who has time on his hands. He's got lots of money in his pockets, and he has an intense desire to enjoy his life because, uh, because in it he hopes to find enduring meaning, significance, purpose, fulfillment. We're studying Solomon's diary in an effort to learn how to better get maximum joy and purpose and satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning out of our lives as we live them here day to day. Thus the title there on your note page and on the screen, Making Sense of My Life Under the Sun. Ecclesiastes is going to be a book that helps us do that, but it's going to help us in a rather roundabout way if you've been with us thus far. Being an inquisitive man with a sharp mind and lots of money and no one who tells to tell him that he can't do something, Solomon sets out in search of life at its most satisfying, gratifying, meaningful, and joy-filled best, but with one catch, and it's a very important catch. He limits his search for a meaningful life to what we have come to know of as an under-the-sun search, right? Remember this? Yeah, say yes. Okay, great. In other words, Solomon set out to find the real meaning and purpose and joy in life while looking at it from a purely horizontal point of view. His is a look at life from an earthly perspective only, under the sun. That's a key phrase. No vertical dimension, no Godward glance for the most part, no inviting God into his world for the most part. It's an under the sun look at life. That is the book of Ecclesiastes. And so his search for life's meaning becomes very helpful, very valuable for us because we get to see what results when a person looks for meaning and joy and purpose in life but does it without God and without a living personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus. What does life look like when that's how you choose to live it? Well, the book of Ecclesiastes gives us that. 
Life without a spiritual dimension, without an eternal focus, strictly from under the sun, Solomon gives us that under the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit. And what does life look like strictly from Solomon's under the sun perspective? Well, he tells us at the very outset, doesn't he? In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, here's what he says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils? Where, church? Under the sun. Vanity. The word means futile, void, dead end, not fulfilling, meaningless. That's the word vanity as Solomon is using it. Life under the sun, he says, is empty. And there are more than a few folks living life in just that way today who would agree with Solomon. They've paused long enough as they've done life to ask, who am I? What am I about? Why am I here? And the disturbing but true realization they come to is that life is empty. It starts nowhere. It ends nowhere when it's lived strictly under the sun. That's Solomon's assessment delivered at the very beginning of his 12-chapter diary. It's a rather bleak opening, isn't it? It doesn't exactly compel you to want to read on. And yet we want to do that. Solomon plunges into all the arenas of life where we, where he suspects a gratifying, satisfying life might be found, one that is meaningful and one that makes sense. And his first stop as he steps into these arenas of life, the very first place he stops is nature. If you remember this from chapter 1, he's going to turn to nature in hopes of finding himself. Many, maybe a meaningful life is found in nature. And that's verses 4 through 11 of chapter 1. But alas, it proves to be a a vain search because in the end, what he discovers is that nature endures, but people don't. It goes on, but people don't go on. And there's no meaningful satisfaction in that, he says. A person may return to nature, but they won't be satisfied in the deepest part of their person because we were made for more than nature. And so in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, he looks in another arena. He turns to wisdom and intellectual pursuits to see if meaning in life might be found there. Maybe he can reason his way into a meaningful life, he thinks. But that doesn't prove fruitful either. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So Solomon says, under the sun only, the more you know, the more frustrated you get. Well, nature and knowledge don't have it for him. So beginning in chapter 2, he turns with his whole being into a self-gratifying pursuit. He's going to look for pleasure to give meaning to his life. Maybe an all-out pursuit of, of what life has to offer under the sun will make it a meaningful life. The expression that we might use today for where Solomon goes in chapter 2 is, is, is going for the gusto, going for it all, living to satisfy all of your wants, living purely on it for emotional and material and, and sensual self-absorbed pleasure. It's all about you. It's all about me. Is there meaning there? Is there a satisfying life to be found in that arena? 
Well, look at what Solomon says in chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was what? Vanity, meaningless, empty. It was smoke and mirrors. Verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained. Where, church? Under the sun. Pleasure was an empty pursuit. Fun for the moment, maybe. Satisfying for a short time. Good as far as it goes. But there was nothing meaningfully enduring about it. Church family, do you think that much has changed in the 2,900 years since Solomon wrote these words in this arena of life? Has anything changed, really? No. In fact, consider this little paragraph we'll put up on the screen for you. I have had few difficulties, many friends, great successes. I have gone from wife to wife, from house to house, and have visited great countries of the world, but I am fed up with devices to fill up 24 hours of my day. Is that not Solomon's assessment? Is that not verses 10 and 11? It is. Now, sadly, what you must know about these words is they are from a suicide note that was found with the body of a syndicated cartoonist by the name of Ralph Barton. Isn't it ironic? His job was making people laugh, but for him, life was not funny. It was a life under the sun, and all the pleasures of life couldn't make it meaningful for him. Brothers and sisters, I hope that we are hearing Solomon and learning from what he says, because the implications of not learning from him, man, they are life and death serious. Well, all of that brings us, as you flip your little note page over, to verses 12 to 26 of chapter 2, as Solomon continues to look in all the wrong places for a life that's going to make sense to him. He looks in two more places today, living smart versus living foolishly, and then he's going to look at the arena of of leaving a legacy, uh, a significant legacy to your kids when you when you die, looking at those two arenas and seeing if maybe in these two pursuits lies the secret to a life that is meaningful and really matters. Let's see what he discovers, beginning at verse 12, chapter 2. He writes, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, that this also is what? Vanity. Meaningless, empty, pointless. Verse 16. 
For of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Solomon returns to an issue that he's dabbled with before, whether to live life employing wisdom, living smart, carefully, diligently, with an awareness of consequences, or whether to to cast caution to the wind, lay hold of a kind of a devil-may-care attitude, live recklessly, letting it all hang out, basically breaking all the rules and letting the chips fall where they may. Which is the best life to lead? Live smart or live like a fool? Does one hold advantage over the other? Is there the secret to a meaningful life in one or the other of those two pursuits? Notice the last part of verse 12. Solomon says, No one is in a better position than I to find out the answer to this question. I'm the king, and I can do whatever I want in any way that I want, with all the abandon that I want. Will anyone come after me who can take this question beyond what I can take it? And the rhetorical answer is no, nobody. He can give us the answer to this question. Is it better to live wisely or foolishly, and is there meaning in one of those two? So he begins to weigh the merits of living smart or living stupidly for the moment. And what does he conclude? Well, he concludes the same thing that you and I would conclude in verses 13 and 14. He says, look, I know that wise living has it hands down over a reckless approach to life. Clear thinking wins big over folly. The fool uh, fool lives his life as if he were walking in the dark as Solomon says, in a blacked-out world. It's much better to live wisely, he says, weighing consequences and being smart. At the very least, you, 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 you suffer less harm, you do less damage to other people by living smart. The fool lives in the dark. Solomon's words remind me of an incident out of my own brother's life. He was deer hunting in Colorado where he lives, and He had headed out alone early, early in the morning while it was still inky dark out. There was no moon. He thought he knew the area that he was in well enough that he could navigate in the dark, and so he had no flashlight. Normally, my brother's a really smart guy. I don't think he was very smart in this moment, though. He didn't take a flashlight. thought he could, could just walk in the dark. So he's walking blindly, literally, and he ends up walking right off of a small cliff. About 12 feet high, so about the the height of a a home roof, your house roof. And he falls, pitch black. He isn't hurt except his his breath gets knocked out of him, but he's, he's not really hurt otherwise. But my brother could have been seriously injured in a 12 foot fall. He could have been killed if his head had hit a rock. Solomon says in verse 14, the fool who goes through life with little thought or care about choices or consequences is like a guy walking in the dark. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Sooner or later, a fool is going to do what? Walk off the cliff, right? It's going to happen. I can see that, he says. Living wise at the very least will save you 
some measure of the heartache or pain that could come to the fool and will come to the fool. So it's not rocket science. We get that. But, verse 14, but he says, yet I perceived or the thought occurred to me that the same event happens to all of them. Wise or fool? What's the event? Both die. Right? Verse 15, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. We both die. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. It's meaningless. If all I have managed to avoid by being smarter than the fool is a little bit of pain or a little bit of sorrow or loss in my life, that's a pretty shallow life when you get right down to it. And he goes, ah, vanity, meaningless. Now again, don't forget, Solomon is looking at life from what perspective? Under the sun only in this moment. And it jades his point of view greatly. And yet he's really right here in this moment. Fools and wise people alike eventually come to the same place. They die under the sun. They die. It's, it's kind of like the T-shirt that was popular a number of years ago. Some of you will remember this T-shirt because you saw people wearing it. Do you remember this T-shirt? It said that the one that dies with the most toys wins. Do you remember this? Yeah? Yeah? In other words, you win at this thing called life if you exit with lots of stuff. Well, it didn't take very long before a rebuttal T-shirt came out, which has the spirit of Solomon kind of captured in it. Yeah, okay, But the one who dies with the most toys, what? Still dies. Still dies. You know, initially Solomon might have thought to print up his own T-shirt that said, the wise man who dies while being wise wins. But upon reflection, he realizes, you know, that's not really true. He knows that he'll have to print up the other side of the shirt, which is both the wise man and the fool still die. And so from under the sun, live smart or be a bonehead. It really doesn't matter. Death swallows up both in the end. The axe falls in the neck of the careful planner just like it does the careless idiot. And in the end, neither has an advantage. And he says, meaningless. Reflecting on this inevitable outcome, Solomon says this in verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days that to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Well, this is really grim stuff. Not, Solomon's not a guy to invite to your party because he's just going to take it into the, into the depths. We can hear his, in his voice how he wishes that it were not so. Whether wise or foolish, the dead are forgotten, he says. If only the dead were remembered, there might be some meaning in life under the sun if the dead were remembered. How he wishes it were different. Time hasn't changed that longing in people's hearts either, brothers and sisters. People want to be remembered when they're no longer on this earth. In fact, have you ever noticed, what are tombstones made of? Are they made of cardboard? 
Are, are they made of styrofoam? What are they made of? They're made of, they're made of granite. They're made of marble, aren't they? And the name of the deceased is etched deeply into that stone to prevent wind and weather and time from erasing the memory of that person. Gravestones represent lives, and those granite markers tell us that within the human heart there is this conviction that the life of a person should not be forgotten. But Solomon observes that it doesn't matter how big your headstone is, you're still forgotten. Now, in fact, just look at the pyramids. you want a great example of this? Just look at the pyramids. There are not but a handful of Egyptian history scholars who could tell you what Egyptian pharaoh is honored by these 500-foot-high tombstones. Just a handful of people could tell you who is to be honored. People don't remember the dead. And Solomon may well have actually been thinking about the pyramids when he writes these words because they had already been in place for 1,600 years before he writes. Maybe he even toyed with the idea of a huge monument to his own life upon his death so that people would remember. Here lies the wisest man who ever lived. But he couldn't remember the name of the pharaoh buried under a 500-foot pile of rock any better than then you or I can remember that Pharaoh's name. And so he says, why bother? <laughs> Fools and wise men both die and both are forgotten. Verse 17. So I, what? I hated life. I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. It's a chasing the wind. All the work, all of the labor, the education, the wisdom, the care and effort and planning, all the time and energy invested in, in, in living does little more than raise the dust on a timeline and that for just a fleeting moment and then the dust settles and you are forgotten. It's empty chasing wind says Solomon, under the sun. Okay. So being smart may spare us some of life's pains and sorrows and negative consequences that the fool will have to experience. But that's all under the sun. Solomon says, I hate the thought of that. I hate it. And so it causes him to wonder if maybe there would be meaning to his life and purpose to his days if he gave his, his life to the goal and focus of leaving a legacy to his kids. Leaving them something significant. Maybe he would pour himself into them and that would give his life meaning. He'll strive to build something that he can hand off. And maybe that will give him purpose and a satisfying life. What do you think? Church, you think this will do it? <laughs> nah, no. Verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. It's meaningless. 
And so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great, what? Evil. Oh, man. Solomon is in the tank, isn't he? He really is. Hear the powerful emotion that's packed into his words. I hate the thought that in an effort to find purpose and fulfillment from living wise and producing much, I must ultimately relinquish all of my accumulated accomplishments to others one day. Control will slip out of my hands as as death loosens my grip and it will all fall into less competent, less diligent, less wise hands. And then what will all of my effort in life have been for? Nothing. Nothing. Meaningless. Someone will get for nothing what cost me everything and with that free ride will come a lack of appreciation for what they've been given and maybe irresponsibility. Who knows? It's just one more blow to Solomon's life under the sun. In fact, you know, there's a bit of irony in this too. The more successful and driven someone is to build an empire that they can leave to somebody else, the more painful it is when they die and have to give it away. Yeah. Just an ironic thing. Verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation, meaning it's a frustration. Even in the night his heart does not rest as he thinks about the ultimate end game when it's all said and done. And he says this also is vanity. It's empty. In other words, says Solomon, it makes no sense. Life from this vantage point of being wise, working hard, leaving a legacy, it makes no meaningful sense. I can't help but wonder if Solomon didn't have a sixth sense about his own son, Rehoboam. Under Solomon, Israel knew 40 years of peace and prosperity. The nation had blossomed as it had never blossomed before. Rehoboam will ascend the throne upon Solomon's death. He'll have opportunity to surround himself with seasoned counselors who are of of age and experience and have a respect and a reverence from God. Or he can choose to surround himself with counselors who happen to be his close friends, young and inexperienced guys who are self-indulging. They really only care about themselves. And he chooses his friends over these other counselors to advise him as he rules as the new king. Well, in no time at all, barely a year after taking the throne, Solomon's kingdom is going to be in civil war because of Rehoboam's poor choices. The country's going to divide. And and Egypt will seize this time of instability and division in the kingdom to threaten to go to war against Rehoboam and say... If you do not pay us huge sums of money, we're going to come in and invade your land. And so what does Rehoboam do? He drains the treasury. He gives all of the wealth of Israel to Egypt. But it's not enough. Disaster comes. In other words, all that Solomon had labored to achieve, toiled to establish, worked so hard to bring into being, 
was handed to another who did not work for it and could not care for it well. If that's all that comes from a life, to work, accumulate, and then hand it off and be forgotten, it's not hard to see why Solomon says it's meaningless. So he has rolled through five arenas of life now. Nature, knowledge, self-gratifying pleasures, living wisely, leaving a notable legacy to others. He blows through these five like a tornado through a trailer park and there's nothing commendable in any of it. So what's the answer, church? What, what, what can make for a meaningful life, a purposeful, satisfying, fulfilling, sense-making life? A, a, a life where there is joy as you experience life day to day to day. Well, thankfully, though only for a moment, amidst all this dreary searching, two full chapters worth, Solomon in the last three verses of chapter 2 pushes back the clouds of his under-the-sun perspective, and he looks above the sun. Believe it or not, he does. For just a moment, he looks above the sun. He turns his earthbound horizontal gaze heavenward, vertically toward God, and for an instant, he sees things in an entirely different light, and it makes a whole new difference and brings a whole new meaning to life for him. Now, he's going to slide back under the clouds many more times before his diary is done. But at least here, and for the first time, Solomon begins to see that real meaning in your life involves bringing God into your life. A meaningful life has to get beyond the borders of an earthbound only life. It has to go beyond. It has to go outside of and above this life. It has to be a life that's lived in relationship to God. And you knew this, right? You've known this from the beginning. Only then can it be enjoyed despite its futilities, its injustices, its endless cycles, its living and its dying. Only then. We're, no way, we're in no way prepared for this hard right angle turn that, that Solomon makes in this moment. He's going this way and suddenly he goes this way. Verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. We read that and say, what? Solomon, you're schizophrenic. I mean, you, you've despaired about everything and, and you find no enjoyment in anything and now you're commending life to us in one verse? Yeah, we don't get it. But the difference maker in this moment is the last part of verse 24 and verse 25. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Apart from him. Apart from him. Everything Solomon has said so far has been about trying to enjoy life and all of its stuff for its own sake, for its own gratifying momentary sake. 
No God, just the moment, just the experience, just the possession, just the wise plan, just the large inheritance that you leave to the next generation. What does it do for you? How does it infuse your life with meaning? Solomon repeatedly says it doesn't and it can't. It's all vanity. But here he commends a much different approach with a much different result. He says, eat, drink, and enjoy. Why? Because it's all from the hand of God. These are gifts from God. Genesis 1.31. You don't even need to turn there. And God saw everything that he had made at the conclusion of his creative handiwork, and it was very good, wasn't it? Remember that? Genesis 1.31. God created everything out of nothing. He created everything that is, including our capacity for enjoyment of what he has made, even though sin has marred it and scarred it. This means there is a God-centered, God-focused purpose behind mankind's enjoyment of everything that God has made under the sun. He has a purpose for it. His purpose is that everything in this life would point us to him and tell us about him, who he is and what he's like. We look at his creation, we share in his creation, and we learn about him. We know about him better. We see God in our world. And that's what Solomon says. There's no place in the Bible that conveys this with more power or clarity than Romans chapter 1. And I might invite you to turn there if you would. We'll put these verses up on the screen, though, for us as well. It's Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 25, and you may be very familiar with these words. Check this out. Romans 1, 20. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. What is that saying to us, church family? Well, the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us through Paul's pen that all of creation is really a massive self-portrait of God, isn't it? It's him painting a picture of himself by his creation. And we look at his creation and we discover things about him. And we are placed within the creation to enjoy all that he has made and learn more about him along the way. Verse 21. So they are without excuse. Who are the they? The they are those who don't want to believe in God and who reject Jesus in their life. That's the they. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they knew that he existed, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The they do two things or fail to do two things. They failed to give God, give God honor for who he is, right? That's what it says. This means that, that although the, the unbelieving know that God exists, they fail to, fail to acknowledge him as God. They fail to reverence him. They fail to enjoy their world and their life in the world with God included. They don't do that. And this is Solomon most of the time in Ecclesiastes. He fails to honor God. He just looks at his world and, and it's empty for him. Because God's not in it for him. They fail to give God honor and they fail to give God thanks. Verse 21 says, all of life under the sun is a gift from our good God, is it not? Church family, is it not? 
Yeah. Enjoying the simple, ordinary blessings of life, nature, work, food, pleasures, family, requires that we see all of these things in our life as gifts from God to us. They are not entitlements. They're not, they're not in our life because of some random collision of atoms or some chance mutation of a gene code. We're, they're not in our life because we have a right to these gifts, these, these things in our life. They're gifts. For something to be a gift, I have to see it as something that I do not deserve. I've been given it, though I didn't deserve it. That's a gift. If I deserve it, then I thank myself for it, right? That's what I do. But if I didn't deserve it, but I get this gift, in this case from God, my response is thankfulness. Verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Is that not a description of an under the sunner? person yeah are we distracted for a moment I'm a little bit distracted whatever's happening needs to be undone okay thanks appreciate that so this is a description of someone who's living under the sun they don't honor God and they don't say thank you to him what the Christian discovers once they connect a life of meaning and purpose to the God who made them in the first place is that every enjoyment and beauty and satisfaction we experience is really a gift from God to us, and we need to recognize it as that. And there lies meaning and purpose and fulfillment. You gave it to me. God, you gave it to me. You gave it to me to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17 puts it this way. It's on your note page. Set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything, with everything to enjoy. And that's the key. That's the thing that Solomon was missing until this moment. We enjoy this life and it has meaning and it makes sense when we see everything as a gift undeserved from God to us. When we make that connection, church family, we want to honor God. We want to say thank you to him. But as Solomon has repeatedly shown us, if you fail to make that connection and everything under the sun is something that you just, you just kind of experienced because it happened... No thought of God. Everything under the sun is tarnished by Solomon's refrain. It's meaningless. It's chasing after wind. It's not a gift from God. Now, do people without any care for God experience joys and satisfactions in this earthly life? Of course they do. They enjoy God's common graces, which he pours out on everyone. But it's an incomplete enjoyment. Something is missing in their enjoyment. Such a person goes to Starbucks and orders a mocha frappuccino. A Christian goes to Starbucks and orders a mocha frappuccino. They both drink it. But the non-believing person drinks that mocha and, and has no heart of thanksgiving beyond the, wow, that tasted good. What an amazing thing. That just tasted good. 
There's no theology in the drinking by the unbelieving person. No recognition of God, no honor of God. He fails to connect his enjoyment of his coffee with the God who created, who created coffee beans. The Christian, on the other hand, he drinks that, coffee, that, that mocha frappuccino and he closes his eyes. Thank you, God. <laughs> that is so good. And it comes from you. Do you get the point? Do you get the idea? It's seeing God in the everyday because he's given you these gifts. They're from him to you. And life takes on meaning and satisfaction and purpose. The Christian has experienced salvation and has received by faith God's ultimate gift, who is Jesus, right? And now we understand something of our wretched sinfulness and And something of God's perfect holiness and what it means to be shown undeserved grace. Gone is any thought of entitlement to anything. I am a sinner. I deserve hell and an eternal separation from this holy God. But God in his love and by the death of his son and his son's resurrection from the dead, I have been forgiven of my sin and I have been given the gift of eternal life. I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve anything. But God has graciously lavished on me all of these good gifts that are a part of my life under the sun. A Christian connects God with their life and it makes all of the difference in the world as to whether that life is meaningful and purpose-driven and satisfying or not. It's the very opposite of chasing after the wind. It's the very opposite of vanity. You probably have various gifts that people have given to you over the years, birthday gifts, graduation gifts, wedding presents. We often attach sentimental feelings to these gifts that we received from these persons because the gift reminds us of the giver. And so those are special gifts. Grandpa's tools, uh, your mom's ring, your dad's pocket knife that he carried in his pocket for years and years and he He gave it to you. In a fire evacuation evacuation order, these are the things that you would make sure you took with you. Why? Because those are gifts that remind you of the giver, right? They have meaning and value because of who gave them to you. Look one more time at chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, verses 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, meaningful purpose. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Everything is a gift from him to us. We honor him for that and we say thank you. So so Solomon is really laying out two ways to live. One is the the under-the-sun way, living for self and for earthly accumulation, only to die and leave it to somebody else. The other is a life lived faithfully under God, enjoying his daily gifts with a grateful heart that's been transformed by the undeserved grace of God through Jesus. In fact, Jesus says it this way. John 17, 3, at the bottom of your note page, we'll put it up on the screen. And this is eternal life, 
that they know you. Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To enjoy God, we have to know God, and the only way to know God is through faith in his son Jesus. Amen? Yeah. To cry out, God, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I believe Jesus died for me. He rose from the dead for me, and that you love me, not because of anything that I do, but because of everything you've done for me. He is the ultimate good gift in my life. And he makes all the rest of my life meaningful. I believe in you. To enjoy this world fully and to truly have a life that matters under the sun, church family, we have to go above the sun. Church family, we have to go to the sun, don't we? Who loves us and gave himself up for us. We've got to know the giver if we want a life of meaning and purpose. And we all say amen and amen. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, you've taken us once again into very practical places today. You have challenged us. You've reminded us afresh of where real meaning and purpose is in our life. You've taken us into some dark spots to, to just jog our memories and help us to not take things for granted. We thank you for being our teacher today. And oh, Heavenly Father, how we thank you for Jesus. Oh, how we thank you for the gift of gifts. Jesus, you make everything else, everything else, (laughs) a a praise to your greatness and your name. Our lives do have meaning. They have purpose. They have a direction. They have a future. We have eternal life through you. We praise you. If today you have come to the Bible church, maybe you're not even sure why you're here, but you've come, and you haven't settled the question of who Jesus is in your life, don't leave today without doing that. Seek out a friend. Pull me aside. Pull someone aside and say, tell me more. I want to know more about the one who can make my life meaningful today, tomorrow, and forever. We'd love to share that truth with you more. All glory be to you, Heavenly Father, the giver of all gifts. In Jesus' name. All good people said? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, church.